Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy. We are going to be in chapter 3 tonight. And we're looking at only two verses, verses 16 and 17. God has plans for you. The Lord wants to work in your life. As your father, he has high hopes for you. As your author, he is aware of your frame. But he wants to work in your life. He has designed each of us with a unique calling, a particular gifting, and an individual path that will best accomplish his purposes in you. But make no mistake about it. In every seat that's full tonight, God has a plan for you and wants to work in your life. And he's not comfortable with any of you adopting a spectator mentality to being a Christian, to come and watch, to come and see what the Lord will do. This is a, a, not a spectator sport. It is a participant relationship. And so we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in him. And furthermore, God is able to make all grace, listen, abound to you, always having sufficiency in all things, that you may abound in every good work. The Lord is interested in your vocation spiritually. And he'll never give up on you until your last breath. It's never too late to have a fresh start in serving the Lord. And that can start for some of us tonight. Whatever has gone before is history. Whatever lies ahead is mystery. But God wants to get a hold of your heart tonight and redirect your path. Maybe you came here not anticipating that, but we have a God who is full of surprises. God is always interested in doing a new thing. A God who is never content with mediocrity, lukewarmness, half-heartedness. He wants us to know the joy, the zeal, the passion of fervently loving God. And serving him. And so the word we have before us is the intersection of divinity and humanity. The Bible is where God meets us so very often. Not the only place, but the major place. Here we find the history and the mysteries, the promises and the prophecies, the direction and the correction. This is where God speaks to his people. This is where God directs his people. And so in these pages, perhaps most importantly, we find clarity about the nature of God and security that we have a loving heavenly Father. So we find in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration by God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete And thoroughly furnished for every good work. Lord, tonight we come before you and we we just open our lives to you, Lord. To the power of your Holy Spirit. 
to the, the move, how you might seek to work in our lives in ways we can't imagine. Your ways are often past our finding out, your, your mind above ours. And so we, we put ourselves naked and transparent before you, Lord. You see our flaws. You see our besetting mistakes and sins. And you see, Lord, our hearts, how we desire to know you and serve you in these last days. And we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Well, here in this passage, and I want to camp out in the first two words and eventually in the last two words. There's so much ripe fruit in between, we've got to move swiftly. But we see here in the first passage that this is why the Word works in our life. Because the Word will work in your life. It works in our life because it is God-breathed. It is inspired. Every word of Scripture, all Scripture, is God-breathed. He spoke through holy men of God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and there is no private interpretation. God specifically spoke to mankind expressly how he intended to communicate. So there is no argument, there is no negotiation, there is no debate. All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is inerrant. And all the promises of Scripture are inevitable. They will come to pass. So it does work. So as we look at Scripture, that is a great point of contention, the inerrancy of Scripture. Some people think Scripture is just philosophy. Some think the the concepts are, are inspired, but man had something to do with it. And through the ages it got passed down and got changed. And that is nonsense. Scripture is inerrant, it is inspired, it is inevitable. Now we know that not just because we have to accept it as a blind leap of faith. There are some proofs we can put to Scripture that we can walk in faith and security and comfort. First of all, it gives us the past. It tells us the history of creation. And the creation story is a reasonable explanation for how this all came to be. It's not the only explanation. There are other ones. The Hindus believe that the earth is held up by a white elephant. Feel free to believe that if you like. There are other, other possible theories that are more rational, rational and plausible. Most notably, of course, Darwin's theory, theory of evolution. And creationism is a human theory. It is a divine fact from a human standpoint. It's a theory from a scientific standpoint because a, a conclusion is changed from a theory to a conclusion when something is both repeatable and observable. That's when a theorem becomes a fact and a conclusion. We cannot either repeat or observe creation. What we can do is take God's word for it. And it is a reasonable supposition that in the beginning God created, that logically if there's a creation, there should be a creator. Now the evolutionists have other theorems, and they're welcome to them. But they are neither believable nor repeatable because there are no transitional forms. And so we have these two points of view, and you need to choose between the two. But listen to the rest of the facts before you jump to delusions. Um, It is an accurate, the Bible is an accurate evaluator of the human condition. People sit around and talk about what's wrong with the world, and there are political solutions, and there are government solutions, and social solutions, and civil solutions. And the Bible says the problem is sin. The core problem that the human race has, and it's not in the government, not in the society, or in in the politics, it's in the human heart. That men are sinners, they are fallen, they are depraved, they are self-absorbed. They'll do anything to achieve their own goals. And that is a fundamental core issue of the human race today. And only the Bible is blunt enough to point that out. So the Bible gives us an accurate uh, evaluation of the human condition. 
Now, it also has the many spiritual claims about the unique birth of Christ, the unique and miraculous nature of his life, the character of God, the consistency of Scripture. And these we can take in faith. We can also look at millions of changed lives that came as a result of believing these claims. And how many lives has evolution changed? How many hospitals has it built? How many missionaries has it sent? How many leper colonies has it built? How many orphanages has it it begun? So you look at the fruit of a theory also. And then perhaps for me the most extravagant and unbelievable claim of the Bible is the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Because if the Bible was contrived by human intellect, it's doubtful you'd make your superhero to be spit upon and and beaten and and torn apart and crucified in the most brutal of ways. That is not a natural human idea. It's a divine genius for Christ to die for the sins of the, the world and then to rise again. And that too speaks of its divine origin. It's a unique claim that the Creator would come and put on human flesh. And that is continually, you see the word of God just being elevated with every step here? That God wants to lift it up as a most unique document on the face of the earth. Able able to to come between your heart and your soul and your spirit and and speak to your life. And so uh, we also must notice that the Bible introduces a, a reasonable review of ancient history. And it brings up a little nation in Genesis called Israel. And God says, I will make of you a great nation. And I will protect you, and your enemies will be my enemies, and your allies will be my allies. And so as you trace the presumptuous nature of that claim for thousands of years, and you come to 1948, guess what? Modern Israel is reborn. And that is one of the most positive proof texts in the world, the Bible is true. Because without Israel, the Bible is an invalid document. If Israel went the way of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all the other Ninevites and and the rest of them, if there were no Israelis, if there was no Israel or hope of Israel, the Bible would be false because it promises there would be. And furthermore, just to kind of blow our little minds, God says, you know what? Not only will I tell you where you came from, not only will I accurately evaluate the human condition, I'm going to tell you about the future. And I'm not going to be vague like Nostradamus. You know, they try to say these, these French prophecies and they, they give these wild poems and they try to tie it into different things. God says, no, 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 none of that. I'll tell you exactly how it's going to be in the last days. I'm going to, I'm going to re-emerge Israel as a nation. There will be nuclear weapons, the Bible talks about in Ezekiel. There will be computers, the Bible talks about in Revelation. It goes on to talk about a cashless society in Revelation. It talks about the ability of armies to move swiftly and to do, have great weapons of war. This at a time when technology wasn't even in a, a jet-propelled donkey. There was nothing. This is thousands of years ago, and God is specifically predicting these things would come to pass in our lifetime. Why? That we might have many infallible proofs. Not just one leg of the table, not, not just creation, not just another leg of the table, not just ancient history, not just, not just Israel, but prophecy in the miraculous life of Christ, and many things to stabilize the the platform of Scripture that we can build our life upon. That's why it says right here that all prophecy is profitable for doctrine. And we need to have good doctrine. You need to have a solid doctrine. You need to put doctrine to rest in your life. If you haven't taken our foundations class, if you haven't taken our step-by-step class, you need to have solid discipleship. Get that done. Get it laid. I worked one time in a skyscraper at Century City. 
It was a, it's a huge thing. Dozens and dozens of floors, and you've seen these marvelous buildings. Well, the people who worked in it, we didn't worry a storm might come. We went up there in the elevators, and it, it never gave it another thought. And the architects weren't concerned that it, it might they'd be why. They dug a deep foundation. They did their homework. The plans were laid properly. And that building is there today, 20, 30 years later. It'll be there for a great long time until, until these earth is shaken. Same thing with your life. Once the doctrine is laid deep in your life, you can't be shaken. No one's going to come to me and dispute the virgin birth, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, the veracity of prophecy. I look at like whatever. It's so deep in my life, uh, God willing, it will, it, I, 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 because he has, he's put it in me, it can't be shaken. It's not negotiable. I'm not open to it. So that's why the, the word is profitable for doctrine. Lay the doctrine deep in your life. Well, the prophecy is really the slam dunk of Scripture. The Bible says in the last days, Israel will reemerge. Its enemies from the north will march in. That will ignite the apocalyptic wars of Armageddon. And God will come to the rescue of Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then the end will come. Well, tonight, Russian tanks are less than 900 miles from the gates of Jerusalem. They rolled into Georgia on the first night of the Olympics. And they, they've been there ever since, rolling to that democratic nation. 900 miles. It is inevitable. Now, this may not be how it happens, but when it happens, this will be the way it's going to happen. You'll hear breaking news on Fox that the Russian army is moving south through Syria and Turkey towards Israel. And it, should, it better send a chill up your spine because if we're here for that, people... That's the beginning of the end. And it's so very close. The scenario is plausible now. We don't know if it is now, but it could be, and we should be ready. Uh, there's no other document on earth that boldly gives specific predictions such as this. And we see them coming to pass in this our lifetime. And the days of Jerusalem being trodden underfoot of the Gentiles are certainly coming to a close. So we have a more sure word, the Bible says, of prophecy. So what should you do if this Bible is true? Knowing these things, what should you do? How should it affect your life? Let's role play a little bit tonight spiritually. And just imagine that until tonight, and it may be true of some of you on tonight, that you didn't believe this Bible was inerrant, inspired, and inevitably coming to pass. But... I hope I can convince you of that and the Holy Spirit will affirm that. Then I'll ask you the question, when you leave this room tonight, what will you do because the Bible is true? How will that impact your life? How will it change your priorities? How will it change your decision-making process that you have? Will you continue to be self-obsessed in emotional dramas and traumas in your life? Or will you get the big picture of what God really wants to do through you and to you and for people around you? Well... We live in a culture with unprecedented access to the Word of God. But if that Word is ignored, we run the risk of experiencing what Amos predicted when he said, there's coming a day of a famine, a famine not of bread or of water, but a famine for the Word of God and for the preaching of the Word of God. Because when we stop listening to the Word of God, God can stop speaking to us. Now, famines are phenomenal things. 70 million people died in the last century of famines worldwide. 20 million or so of them died in China around 1958. 
But do you know that although many famines are caused by natural disasters, the worst of the famines are caused by humans? You know, Joseph Stalin caused millions of Ukrainians into a forced famine to annihilate their population. And that many famines are caused because of the misappropriation of the resources that are available for the people. The same thing is true of the Word of God. The Word of God is available. What happens is when men and women of God stop preaching and teaching the Word of God, they create a false famine in the church. And people are starving to death in the pews of the church when the Word of God is available and accessible and ought to be made open and plain to the people. There's a trend of the church today away from bringing this book into the pulpit. In fact, there's a, a trend away from pulpits, just sitting on stools, kind of just a sensitive seeker prayer and share time. No Bible, just throw in a few scriptures and talk about God and the goodness of, of Jesus. That's a dangerous trend. It's a slippery slope. If anything, we should run back to the fundamentals of being sure our people are well taught and well fed. And that's what this pulpit is all about. And people say, oh, this church is, is too big. I, I don't feel comfortable in it. I, I want to go to a smaller church. I'll tell you something. I want to go to a bigger church. I want a church so big that we have to start different churches. I want a church with people so well-fed and so healthy and so impacting their community that you, 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 gotta, you can't even let them in the doors. And it might be nice and comfortable to go to a church where you know everybody, but the fact is, is negated by, by one number. That's six billion people on earth. We need megachurches in every, every corner and every capital and every city. There's not enough time and not enough space for us to be selfish and say, I want a nice little comfortable Christian experience. It's by all means, by all people, getting the word out to everybody. So, well, that's why the word works. Let me talk now how the word works. As the doctrine is laid in our life, we see the, the doctrine is profitable and then it's followed by three other benefits of good doctrine. First of all, reproof, that's what's wrong. Correction, that's what to do about it, the course correction. And then instruction in righteousness, that's training and pursuing God's will. So it's doctrine, that's what's right, listen. Reproof, that's what's not right in your life. Correction, that's how to get right. And then instruction, that's how to stay right. That's what the word does for you. It doesn't just say you're wrong. There's no condemnation in Jesus. And so it says, here's what's right. Here's the doctrine to, of, of the Bible. Now, the Holy Spirit examines your life. It inventories your life. And it points out to you what needs correction. That's reproof. And it can be rebuke. And it, it can become harsher. There are circles of discipline. Just as there are circles of discipline for your children. As they first begin to err, you speak to them. They say, now don't do that. And then if they progressively and chronically disobey, you have to take stronger and stronger action. The same is true of you and your father. Initially, if you're erring, he'll speak to your heart and say, that's not the right path. You're not going, you'll be convicted. It's not going to be profitable. It's not fruitful. And if you continue to chronically disobey, he'll have to take stronger and stronger action. He's a good father in heaven. He can't allow us, he can't wink at sin because he knows it's going to be unfruitful for us. So that's what the Bible will do to us and for us. It will reprove us. It will correct us. It will instruct us. And so we have that training in the pursuit of righteousness. I remember that one of the first pastor's conferences I ever went to, and Pastor Chuck said, what is the purpose of the church? 
We all, you know, the Great Commission, evangelism, to reach, to reach the world, to feed the poor. No. He took us to Ephesians 4. And he says, God has given pastors and teachers and evangelists and gifted men and women for the building up of the church and the edifying of the body of Christ. The purpose of the church, the purpose of the staff, the purpose of the structure of the church is that you might be healthy, that you might be released to express your gifts and your calling. And when the dynamic of a healthy church begins to function and the equation begins to roll, it's an unstoppable train. So our purpose is to equip you to be released to express your unique and individual gifts and callings. And so uh, that's the instruction in righteousness, how we are to stand before God. If you go to Buckingham Palace in London, you'll find the guard standing out in front of the palace where the, when the, the royal family lives. And they, they stand at attention before royalty. And they are trained in standing before royalty. And they are impeccably dressed. And they are, they are groomed. And they, they are absolutely disciplined. That's what this word means. To teach us how to stand before the royalty of God. To be instructed in right standing before God. That we might be well disciplined. Because we do stand before God naked and transparent with him with whom we have to do. So that's how the word begins to work through our life. And the barricades that sometimes are constructed over these two transactions, um, why the word works and how the word works are these. We can put a barricade over the flow of God's work in our life by having a low view of Scripture. If you take a casual view of the Bible, you're going to lower the ability of the Word to work in your life. You need to elevate, promote the Word in your life. Realize it is a sacred letter from God, unique above all books and all documents on earth. And the other barricade that we can have, so we can have a low view of Scripture on one hand, that will barricade why the Word will work, and then we can have a hard heart, and that will barricade when the Word will work through our life. If, if you will not open your heart, the Bible says, harden not your heart. The Bible says, don't limit the Holy One of Israel. The Bible says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. All those things create barricades and barriers to free flow of God's Spirit. So harden not, limit not, and quench not. And that will allow living water to flow through your life. That's what God wants to bring. Rivers, the Bible says, of living water will go through your life. He wants to create an oasis in the desert. That's really what this building is. It's an oasis, and people come here for living water. Same thing can be true of your life. As the rivers of living water flow through you, people will come to you because they may not quite know why, but they'll realize you have the joy of the Lord, you have the truth of living water, and you'll be attractive to them. So the principle of flowing water is important, and let me give you an illustration. In Israel, there are three tributaries at the head of the Sea of Galilee that form uh, that flow into that sea, the Banyas River and two, other, two others surrounding it. Jesus stood there at the head of that tributary and said to his disciples, Whom do men say that I am? It was such a powerful moment because they were in the city of Caesarea Philippi where the Greeks had all their, all their idols and the caves up there and whatnot. And he stood with that as a backdrop. He said, who do men say that I am? And that's where Peter confessed him as the Christ. 
And so from that water flowing into the Sea of Galilee, it is the, it is the lifeblood of Israel. Without the Sea of Galilee, Israel isn't. It's the, it's the only major freshwater body of, uh, in, the, in the nation of Israel. And that is a picture, a word type of what God wants us to receive from the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three tributaries flowing into our life and that providing the life flow for us. But out of the Sea of Galilee comes the Jordan River also and it flows into what we know as the Dead Sea. And the problem with the Dead Sea is it's dead. It doesn't go anywhere. It just receives all this water. And you've, you've heard this illustration before, but it, it, it's so potent and so fits with this text. Because I fear that is a huge issue in the church. And it's a barrier to the word working in our life that we just receive and receive and receive and receive the living water and receive it and become bloated and become stagnant and become dead. That may sound like an oxymoron. You receive so much Bible teaching, you become dead. But I believe it can numb you. I believe we need to shake off the effects of self-imposed Novocaine we've injected into our souls by only receiving, receiving, and receiving and put our faith to work. Put the Word to, to work in our lives and just see what the Lord will do. I believe there's an incredible dynamic prepared to take place because so many people have feasted upon God's Word. And what can happen here and in our community, in our state, in our country, and around the world as a result of the explosion of the understanding of God's Word is really something that could be tremendous. So we are completely capable of tremendous things for the Lord. But we must do a, make a few, a few changes. Do a little landscaping in our life. Let's talk about that. Because the, the other principle here in our last verse is the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so you must be fully informed because you cannot live above your beliefs. Did you get that? You cannot live above that which your conscience has been educated with from the word of God. So you must be fully informed with the full counsel of God's Word. People say, what's the best commentary on the Bible? Easy answer. It's the Bible. Because the Bible is not one book, it's 66. And the, the Bible is a commentary on itself. And the most powerful thing you can do is cross-reference Scripture. And the, the best thing you can do to defeat cultism and, and fads and fashions and aberrant theology is get the full counsel of God's Word. And so you secure your foundation, test yourself to see if you're in the faith, correct the course as the Holy Spirit leads you, and then as you stand firm and secure in God's presence, listen, He's going to give you tools and equipment. And there are certain things that only you can do and you are equipped individually and divinely for. We've all watched some sports in the Olympics. I watched some sports I didn't understand. People with cray paper running around in the mats and people kneeling in boats, and there's some wild sports they have. But... But they all have certain equipment. And you would no more pole vault with a javelin than you throw a javelin with a pole vault. You've got to have the right equipment. And, and you wouldn't go in the equestrian race with a bike because you wouldn't get over the first jump. So it's just obvious you, to, compete, to compete, you have to have the right equipment. And he says you can be thoroughly equipped as you are mature in Christ. And the word complete, I want to pause for a moment. It, it's a word, it's a tool type word. I'm not a tool-type guy in, in the home improvement scenario. I am Al and not Tim. But, but I do know this. When you do get the right tool to fix something, 
You can't get the wrong tool. You can't. I've tried this, the wrong wrench. It almost fits, and you do it, and you strip the bolt. Sometimes it turns, but it, it, fray, it frays it or something. But when you get the right tool, and you put it on top of the head, and it slips on there, and just, it's just sweet when it, when, it, when it turns it. That's the word here, to be complete. To be the right fit. Some of you are trying to fit in the wrong place in the church. And it's kind of working, but it's, it's loose, and it's not quite right. But let me tell you, it's all the difference in the world when you really fit and the ratchet just clicks and, you, and God begins to work. And when people have that calling sure in their life, there's nothing like it. I, don't, I can't tell when people don't have it all the time, but I know when they do because they are lit up and nothing's going to stop them. And they are going down the road 100 miles an hour because God has showed them and worked through them and moved through them and there is nothing on earth like it. So that is to be complete and to be thoroughly furnished. You need to have the right tools, get the right equipment. We used to have friends when I was like nine. We'd go to their house, and they had nice furniture, but they had plastic all over it. It's bizarre. And you sit on these nice couches on plastic, like, you know, as nine years old, and then you go to set your Coke on the coffee table. Don't do that. What, what's it for? And sometimes that's how we are with our faith. Sometimes, that's how we are with the faith. Oh, we don't want to get our notes. We have all our notes. We have all our faith. Our, everything's in line. You need to get your faith dirty. You need to get it down in the mud and get it working. You need to stretch your faith. You need to challenge yourself. You need to get in the front lines and not have it all exactly in order. When's the last time you had butterflies spiritually because you weren't quite sure if God was going to come through for you? He always does. When you really stepped out there and said, God, I'm, I'm going I'm to speak the word here at work, and I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to go for it. And, and the Lord will come through for you. You need to be willing to stretch it. And he'll equip you for it. And you, you, you have a unique gift. You, you don't see the shot putters trying to run the 100-meter dash. So what God has gifted you for, what you're passionate for, and as you take inventory, you get up in the morning and you ask yourself spiritually, what's on my heart to do for the Lord? It's very likely he placed that there. You don't have to create some spiritual scenario of what you should be doing, what your mate or anybody else tells you you should be doing. What is the Lord telling your heart to do? And if you'll be still, you'll know and he'll tell you. And he'll lead you because he's promised to do that in his word. Be still and know that I am God. So, now, you have a unique gift. Now, around here, we have a multitude of gifts on staff. Over the years, I've seen guys who love to counsel. They come in, during, come in in the morning, they have eight counseling appointments all day long. And they love it. They have the gift of discernment, they have the gift of compassion, the gift of, uh, of knowledge, and they sit there and they're, they're tremendous at it. That would be a death sentence to me. I, I, not that, I know the mechanics of counseling. I, know, I, I can counsel. I, I, I know how to counsel. But I have the attention span of a hummingbird. And so that's just not my particular gift. And so you, you may not be called to evangelism, but we all have the personal evangelism to do in our sphere of influence. And so uh, at any age of stage of life, God will equip you and use you. If you're young in the Lord... You don't expect much of babies. I have little grandchildren. I don't expect them to do much. They just basically are, and they can get away with almost anything. That, that doesn't last long. Eventually, they become some responsibility. Many of you are mature in the faith, and you can't get away with being like babies, just coming and going and taking. 
To whom much is given, much is required. And that's the stage of maturity in your life. God wants to equip you and use you and be glorified through you. So let me ask this question. Do you know your spiritual job description? In the workplace, many of you have those. They're given out to you as a mission statement or in the HR department. You have a job description. I believe the same thing should be true spiritually. We have to be very clear and very sure about our calling. What is our spiritual job description? And it shouldn't be vague. It should be some hyper-spiritualized thing to save the world, to pray for everyone. It should be very specific according to your gift set and the revelation of what God has given to you. So some questions. What view do you have of Scripture? Do you have a high view? Do you take it for granted? Is it something that you think is, is uh, too mysti- mystical for you to understand? You need to get it right where it should be. That is, God puts the fruit where his children can reach it. And you have to study to show yourself approved, but that will pay off. So are you informed? Biblically illiterate Christians are a scandal in heaven. Study to show yourself approved. And then that speaks of the issue of a a high or low view of Scripture. That's a barricade we saw in that area. And then are you teachable? Are you available? That speaks of do you have a hard heart when the Word wants to work through you? Are you open to God? Do you think you know it all? You've been through the Bible a couple times. You think you pretty well have a handle. Are you still teachable? At 80 years of age, Moses was still teachable. And God began to use him. Then, are we fruitful? Have you, have you been bearing fruit? In a moment, we're going to talk about some tests you can use to discover your calling. But first, let me tell you a story about a, a guy who died yesterday. His name was Dave Freeman. He wrote a book. He was an ad, ad guy from Newport Beach, California. He wrote a book called 100 Things to Do Before You Die. It include, included night surfing in Australia and vine jumping in the South Pacific and running with the bulls and all these hundred different things to do before you die because he said life is too short. It's a journey. You have to take full advantage of it. Well, he, he, he fell at his home in Venice, California yesterday and died, which just proves that most accidents happen within 10 miles of the house. And here's a guy who's gone all over the world doing adventures, and he dies at 47 years of age. He had gotten through 50 things on his list. I didn't read the whole list, but what I did read, I didn't see what should have been the most important list. Let me give you a list of things you should do before the rapture. Things you should do. Now, obviously, the first thing that should have been on his list and uh, should be on yours is getting saved. So if you've never made that commitment to Christ, you need to do that tonight. To come to Jesus Christ, we'll give you that opportunity in a few minutes and make sure your salvation... That it's not religion, it's relationship through Jesus Christ, through his shed blood on the cross, his resurrection, and his promise of eternal life by paying for your sins through that avenue, getting saved. But then, you need to take, once you are saved and in, in the kingdom and a child of the Lord, a spiritual aptitude test. And it, it's in Scripture. If you go through Scripture, it will re- reveal to you how God will, can use you And you need to understand your calling. The Bible anticipates that every one of the people in God's church will be involved in the ministry. Paul put it very bluntly, just three words, fulfill your ministry, period. So that is an individual responsibility you can't shirk off to anybody else. And maybe you've tried to get involved. Maybe you say, well, I've called the church. 
Are you going to stand before the Lord and say, I tried to fulfill, but they wouldn't call me back, Lord? <laughs> it's not going to fly. You, you, need, you need to fulfill your ministry. Um, you need to do what you do with passion. You have to fall in love with what you do. You know, I, I think sometimes we should have to install seatbelts in, in our, our chairs here at the church. That's how excited we should be about the Word of God, the promises of God, and the future He has for this church. Now, for some of the people, the seatbelt should hold you from coming forward and really coming to Christ. You know, during the Great Awakening back in New England, when Jonathan Edwards was preaching, people would crawl forward in repentance in the middle of the sermon because they were so cut to the heart by the Word of God. That's being teachable. That's being reachable by God's Holy Spirit. Same thing should be true of us. We should be excited and anticipating what God wants to do through our lives individually and then corporately what we can do. The church has seldom had such great opportunities as we enjoy right now. The privileges are just outstanding. And some of you are being deprived. Deprived? I don't like being deprived. You are voluntarily depriving yourself. You are, you are forfeiting the, the privilege and the opportunity to being used properly in God's kingdom. That can change tonight. Well, here are some tests to apply to your life to see if you are walking in your calling. I've mentioned the first word, passion. Do you have passion? Are you in love with it? it would, would you just do it no matter what? If nobody noticed, if nobody knew, if you, it was just you. That's the Jeremiah syndrome. Just doing it if it's only you. Um, do you have peace? Now, none of these are standalone proofs. But taken as a whole, they really give an indication of your aptitude. And they, they show it if you're walking in your calling. And then if, if many of these things are present, you can know you, you're on the right path. Do you have peace in what you're doing? You can, have, you can have the adrenaline. It doesn't mean you aren't nervous about serving the Lord. But do you have peace about where you're going in general? Is God providing? Well, God will provide if he's called you and guided you into an area. Is there provision or is there strife? Are you striving to, to fulfill your ministry? And so if you have passion and peace and, and provision, there will also be another ingredient that God will bring along, and that's power. He will empower you to do things you can't imagine. And he has promised to do that. He won't leave you out there on the limb. And eventually there will be progress. Now, generally we say there needs to be fruit. There are exceptions. We see in the Old Testament exceptions where the people preached their whole life and didn't have any converts. That's the exception and not the rule. Generally, you want to gauge for fruit. If, if all these things are working in concert, you can be comfortable that you're pouring yourself and investing yourself in the right avenue. Are you doing that? Do you have passion? Are you on fire for the Lord? Or is it a little bit lackadaisical, a little bit lazy, a little bit lukewarm? Something you can take it and you can leave it if a better offer comes up. Is it something that is, it, it pretty much is a matter you have to fulfill your ministry. You just have to do it no matter what anybody says. Well, that's something you should do before the rapture. Experience your calling in full. And then give something truly sacrificial and be sure to do it anonymously. Um, give yourself away. Sacrifice something, not just comfortably, and I'm not talking financially. I'm talking about of your time, of your essence, of yourself. 
Give yourself away so it hurts. Spend a Saturday down at at the YMCA playing basketball with orphans. Give away your discretionary time in ways you normally would, would, would squander upon yourself. Go down to Joy Junction and serve food one night. Go to the Albuquerque Rescue Mission and fast that day and serve the homeless. Shake yourself up and go on a a mission trip to Mexico. Again, if you've gone before. Stretch yourself. Save up next, next summer and go to Mongolia or Macedonia or the Middle East. Stretch yourself. Make the Christian calling into a spiritual adventure. This is a, not a hobby. You know, one of the big things, I'm not putting it down, one of the big things now for men is just fantasy sports leagues. And I, I love football as much as anybody, but I don't get it. I have enough trouble keeping up with reality, uh, much less being worried about a sport that doesn't exist. It's just, but we don't want to play fantasy church. Imaginary things. This is the real deal. Some of us need to pray about adopting orphans, whatever stage you're at in life. Why? There's 125 million of them worldwide. But more than that, as I read the Bible, God's heart is for the fatherless. God cares deeply for the orphans. And so what should we do if the Bible is true about that? Some should pray about being able to adopt or at least reach out and support some. Lead someone to Christ. Now, I hear the statistic periodically that 80, 90% of the church has never led anyone to Christ. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands tonight. But I'm going to say this. Even though you may not have the gift of evangelism, you can all be an evangelist. The Bible says God will give you the desires of your heart. And we often think what that means, whatever I desire, he'll give me. No, he will give you the actual desires that will be placed them in your heart, and then he'll fulfill them. And I really believe that if you'll ask the Lord to help you lead someone to Christ, he'll do it tomorrow or very soon. Because I know it's on his heart to do it. We have a missionary God. And if if you'll step out in faith and just continue to ask the Lord to open the doors, I believe he'll do that. Now, when you do that, I've got to warn you, it becomes addictive. That leads us to our, our next thing to do before the rapture. And that's get addicted to spiritual service. And I realize in looking over that scripture in Corinthians, it talks about the household of Stephanus being addicted to the serving of the saints. I realized how Satan has hijacked that word. Of all the times you've heard the word addicted, how many times has it been used positively? Almost never. And then I realized we are hardwired for addictive behavior. God has put that into our heart. Satan recognized that, and he's taken and perverted it, and now we were addicted to self-destructive behavior for narcotics and for, for uh, relationships and all kinds of things that, that are hurtful to us, and God means for us to be positively addicted to things. You can become addicted to intercessory prayer. I know people that are. They spend so much time praying for all corners of the world. You can become addicted to serving the children in this ministry. There are a plethora, unlimited number of things you can be addicted to spiritually. I'm challenging you to adopt a spiritual addiction that you can't live without. That's the definition of an addiction. If you, you, I, we were down, downtown yesterday at a church, and they were having a Narcoholics Anonymous meeting at lunch, people who were addicted to narcotics. And these are people who will do anything for a fix. 
anything. It is the most central thing in their life when they need a fix, whatever it might be, of crack, of heroin, whatever the addiction might be. Well, I say we turn the tables on that and that we feel so strongly about our calling, so magnetically attracted to something, whether it be mission work or prayer work or work in the church, whatever your individual unique calling might be, that you'll, you'll do anything, give up anything to, to fulfill that ministry. That's a true addiction God has put into the life of his church. Well, finally, I think that we need to also be willing to take a spiritual adventure. Just got a few minutes left here, but um, I was reading a book I've read a few times, uh, Bruchko, about a young man in Minnesota who just walked off one day into the jungles of Columbia, off the streets of Minneapolis into Columbia. I know it sounds bizarre, but he did it. God called him to it. He lived an unbelievably deprived uh, life in, in the jungles, and he was able to reach uh, the, these tribes and learn their language. And he lived in the most unsanitary of conditions, and he was threatened, and he got ill, and just an incredible adventure. And as a result of that, though, there's been generations of churches built in the jungles of Colombia because of this man. If you've not read the book, I encourage you. It's called Bruchko. It's a true story. Well, I'm not encouraging us to walk off into some jungle uh, tomorrow, but I am saying to you, don't deprive yourself of the adventure. Adventure sports are big time right now. People doing uh, hang gliding and, and, and trekking and all sorts of things, uh, windsurfing and, and diving with the sharks and whatnot. Well, I, I say that we, we also recapture that spiritually and have some spiritual adventures and see what the Lord will do in this community, in our households, in our individual lives. Maybe you're being called to fast, to deprive yourself of food for an extended period of time. The Bible anticipates, Jesus said, when you fast... Here's how you should do it. And there is an acceptable fast to the Lord explained in the Old Testament. That's a spiritual adventure. There are many. Don't, don't forfeit these rights. Before the door closes, let's take full advantage of all these special opportunities that are open to us right now to every one of us here in this room and everyone in the church of Jesus Christ. These are special times. God is guiding us through some treacherous waters, but exciting times lie ahead of the harvest. The Bible does clearly say in closing, look up because the harvest fields are ripe and white, but the laborers are few. I pray that wouldn't be true among us. In a few minutes, we're going to have a few songs. The pastors are going to come forward here and give you the opportunity to come and and pray. If you have something you need prayer for, someone you want to pray about, maybe you're considering a calling. Some of us need to be moved somewhere. Some are being called to the mission field. Some are being called to the ministry. Some are being called at any age or stage of life into further education. Some need to just really rearrange the the spiritual furniture in their life and start using it properly and get serious about God. This is a night to begin that. As the band comes out right now, the pastors are going to come forward. We're going to stand up. I'm going to ask you to consider coming forward and asking for prayer as you feel led. And know this. If you're already fulfilling these things, if you're already fully engaged, I have a couple things to say to you. First of all, carry on. And then second of all, find a Timothy. Find somebody to lead and give an example to. The Bible says, provoke others to love and good works. And so if you're a mature, walking believer, find somebody to be an example for, draw them along behind you, and provoke them to love and to good works. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. 
If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.